minding your own business in the trenches of Petersburg when the world blows up underneath your feet. We'll look at the Battle of the Crater from the Confederate perspective with our guest, Kevin Levin, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Mary Hart, and this is AWRT Empowering America. Born in Texas in 1914, Mildred was a poor student, usually passing only enough courses to remain eligible for athletic competition. In 1930, an insurance company recruited Mildred to play for the company's basketball team in Dallas. Profiting from the coaching provided by the insurance company, Mildred's interest was drawn to track. Between 1930 and 32, she held American, Olympic, or world records in five different track and field events. During World War II, she gave golf exhibitions to raise money for war bonds. And by the end of the war, she emerged as one of the most successful and popular woman golfers in history. By the time of her death from cancer in 1956, Babe Diedrichson Zaharias had been named Woman Athlete of the Half Century by the Associated Press. Empowering America is sponsored by the Foundation of American Women in Radio and Television and is made possible by the generous support of AT&T, caring for the communities where we live and work. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Today, talking with Kevin Levin about the Battle of the Crater, 1864. Kevin, we talked in our last segment about the the Union attack, the uh, digging of the mine, the explosion, the forces that poured into the crater uh, there to be massacred. But you've done a considerable amount of research on the the Confederate perspective. Uh, You said you've read letters from Confederate soldiers who were uh, participants in this. And what do you see from, from the rebel side? Well, let me just, that's a great question. Let me just preface it by, by saying that, that, that my research um, on this has really focused on uh, the memory of the battle. So most of what I'm looking at is how mainly white Southerners, not just white Southerners, but mainly white Southerners, how they remembered this battle, uh, say, in 1900, 1950, and even today um, to a certain extent. And, you know, if you look at 1903, for example, uh, there's a famous uh, uh, reunion and reenactment of the battle in Petersburg on the actual site. Um, There are veterans of Mahone's uh, Virginia Brigade that took part in the attack, but there really is no mention whatsoever of any black presence. Now, maybe we can talk about that later, but that clearly stands in sharp contrast to how uh, Confederates uh, thought about and wrote about the battle uh, in the days and weeks following July 30th and you know as i said before in the last segment they were outraged that these uh that that the federals would throw these men um at them i think a couple things are should be pointed out here i think it 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 clear it was a clear um recognition of what was at stake in this war i think for confederates seeing a a black man with a rifle in his hand I think it, it, it provided them with a very clear sense of what was at stake, that losing the war uh, may involve or will involve a, an overturning of their antebellum racial hierarchy. Um, and so I think that's important. I think it also, if you read their letters, it, it, it gives them a newfound sense of, 
of, of nationalism. I know that's an overused word uh, these days, but I think there's following the battle, a, 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 once again, a strong identification with, with the federal cause. And I think most importantly, a sense that, um, and this doesn't just involve the black soldiers, but just winning this battle, um, generally speaking, uh, that perhaps there is a chance to win the war, uh, that if they can continue to throw back uh, these kinds of attacks with such ease, uh, that perhaps there's a chance, and especially given the fact uh, that there's an election looming in the future, uh, that there's a chance of winning the war. Uh, I can give you just uh, an example or two, if you want, sure. uh, from these Confederate soldiers. Um, this is um, David Holt, um, and he was with um, a South Carolina regiment. Uh, they were the first we had seen, and the sight of a nigger in a blue uniform and with a gun was more than Johnny Reb could stand. Fury had taken possession of me. I knew that I felt as ugly uh, as they looked. Uh, William Pegram, this is a, a different Pegram from Richard Pegram, uh, and this, I think, is very insightful in terms of, of how um, Confederates viewed this battle. Um, they, they threw down their arms to surrender, but we were not allowed to do so. Uh, every bomb-proof I saw had one or two dead Negroes in them who had skulked out of the fight and been found and killed by our men. He goes on to talk about how happy he is pleased he is, I should say, that, that the Union Army uh, or Union officers had included black soldiers. For, for Pegram, uh, it really did clarify uh, what this war was about and just what was at stake. And, um, and they don't shy away from talking about it, and they don't shy away from talking about how many of them were treated. It's hard to know how many exactly, uh, but the numbers that were actually executed after the battle, um, after the battle was over. And so it was really an important a, point, and it's, and it's a point that's been forgotten uh, in large part. I, I, I would say it's come back in recent years, but clearly through much of the 20th century, uh, that part of the story has been left out. Well, that, that is a very interesting point. I have argued that the, one of the issues with slavery in the, the antebellum years, and, and others argue this more articulately than I have, mm-hmm. uh, but that the South's turning point in terms of, of, of accepting slavery doesn't really come until 1831 when you have both Garrison's Liberator being published and, and establishing a, a very loud and obnoxious mm-hmm. abolitionist voice on the one hand, right. and of course Nat Turner's Rebellion right. on the other, later. which is becomes the the sort of waking nightmare of of the white south that, yeah. that the last thing you will see uh in this world is, is an axe coming down uh toward your your head as you lie in bed when when the slaves break in and, and rebel i and think the that's fear right. of black violence underlies much of, of, of the hardening attitude of the white south for the next 30 years and that ties in very clearly with what you're saying here here's the realization of, of that that fear uh, black men with guns. That's right. And it's so interesting how by, say, ni- early, uh, the early 1900s, as Virginia begins to um, pass you know, Jim Crow legislation, it's so interesting, uh, that legislation, how it's designed to prop up as closely as possible that racial, that antebellum racial hierarchy, how, how convenient it is to forget about that black presence. In other words, that you don't want to remind, the, say, the local black community in the Richmond-Petersburg area of their own attempts at, uh, at gaining their own freedom. And, uh, and it's interesting how all that plays out, um, especially after the war, 
Um, you just this this disappearance, of, and I think that obviously fits more generally in the disappearance of of um, emancipation. Um, the story that David Blight tells uh, so eloquently, the story of emancipation, and you know the story of United States color troops. So it, I, for me, that's the most that's the most interesting part of what I'm doing with this battle. Really trying to show how that happens, how the how that that disappearance happens, and why it's so important, you know, to to get it back. I mean, especially given more recent debates about the National Park Service and whether or not they should expand. Uh, their battlefield interpretations to include uh, the causes of the war and uh, the the story of emancipation uh, as part of the war itself. And I think the crater is a perfect place to do it. You can't ignore it. I think that's a good point. I I think some of the opposition to the the new interpretive stance of the Park Service is that if, um, you know, at, at Gettysburg, do we need an extensive discussion of the causes of the war and you can make an argument uh, that that's not the right place. At Fort Sumter, sure, but maybe Gettysburg is not so much the right place to argue that you should not mention race at a place like the Crater or you know Fort Pillow or, or Fort Wagner uh, would be absurd because it's certainly a factor in those battles. Yeah, as a teacher, <laughs> I, I think as a teacher, uh, you know, I, I I feel so strongly about this, uh, and given that most people who who have some kind of interest. Uh, in the Civil War. I, I think given that most of these people, most people in general, who have an interest in the military part of the of, of the Civil War, I, I think the more it's introduced, the better. I, I know it's a controversial issue. I think even at Gettysburg, um, it, it, it can be done. It can be done uh, in a way that complements the battle. I don't think anything has to be lost. I know that's a, an argument that's been made. Um, but I, I, I think it's important. It's um, this tendency to see the war as simply a battle after battle, I think is misguided, uh, and, I, and I think it reduces the war uh, to a kind of entertainment. I've, I've sort of used that term um, on various blog postings, sort of civil war entertainment, that, that we need, as difficult as it is for many people, uh, the war is more complex than that. And I think we, we lose sight of that. We, um, we reduce uh, the actions on the battlefield um, to something approaching a, a kind of meaninglessness. They're just sort of slugging it out. That kind of um, it, it's uh, not not unlike college football. Uh, it, it's a great right. contest. Some people get hurt, uh, right? But no ultimate meaning. You'll play the same game again next year, and we'll tell the story over and over, right? Until we're red in the face. And and yet, as you point out, this is the interpretation advanced by the veterans themselves by 1900. That's right. David White certainly argues that. And it is an interpretation. I mean, this idea that um, that that what the say what the Park Service or what academics in general are suggesting today in terms of the so-called new military history, uh, that it's interpretation. Well, I mean, it's all interpretation. What the veterans were pushing and what the, the various con- uh, veterans organizations were pushing, that was all interpretation. The question well, now, is... The state of Florida would argue with you because they've, they've passed a that's right. new legislation. No uh, postmodernist history. That's right. They, According to the state legislature in Florida, history is knowable. It consists of facts. And, that's right. Uh, Right, uh, that's, interpretation be damned. Uh, right, that's right. I, I, that's uh, well, that's a that's a whole other problem. It seems to me, <laughs> it, it is. They, they don't say which of the infinite sea of facts we're supposed to choose. Apparently, that's self-evident to them. It, it seems to me a, a problem more about I think relativism yeah. um, than anything else. That's what they're concerned about. Let me let me sure. bring us back to the crater here. Yeah. The uh, the thing that strikes me, I, I, your argument about memory and how the crater is remembered. 
certainly ties into the probably the hottest topic in Civil War historiography today, the the issues of memory and, and reinterpretation, uh, remembrance lore. You mentioned David Blight. Uh, Thomas Stardens has written about uh, Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Sure. And Tim uh, Smith, who you had on, has written a little bit about uh, Shiloh. Exactly. Tim More of an institutional Smith history, but but uh, he does focus on those broader issues. Uh, absolutely. And, and it, it's it's uh, very, becoming very much the, the thing to to think about, and it's an important topic. But I, I'm struck by your the quotes you, you offered from the letters written by Confederate soldiers at the time, the degree to which the presence of black soldiers brought such clarity to what they were fighting for. That, I mean, there are, there's always dissension in any war. Uh, we can see that uh, in the headlines today. But here was an issue that whether you initially had supported secession or not, whether you were... Slave owner, slaveholder yourself or not? Right. Here was something that that uh, the average Confederate soldier had a very strong and clear feeling about. That's right. Uh, they were not going to be put on a level of equality with these Africans, and uh, when the Africans come at them with guns in their hands, they are going to kill them, surrender or not, mm-hmm. uh, to, to prevent this happening. That that I find striking. And, and it also, I think, is important. I mean, given the. Uh amount of attention that uh, I guess Southern Heritage groups are focused on this this issue of black Confederates. I mean, it it really forces you to go back and rethink that whole thing. Uh, I mean, I recommend Bruce Levine's treatment, um, uh, Confederate Emancipation, which has recently recently been published. But uh, you know, challenging these claims of thousands of black soldiers fighting uh, in some sense with uh, the various Confederate armies, um, the the language coming out of these soldiers following the creator seems to really throw all much of that uh, into question um, that their their frustration is not just that they are union soldiers but that these men have guns and they're angry um, and that goes beyond uh, it seems to me um, the debate uh, or I should say it, it has to enter into the way we think about the, this 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 whole black confederate um, uh, discussion, this de- debate, which I really don't think is a debate, um, because I think it's misguided, you know, uh, at its core. Uh, but it, how do you explain that? Um, it, uh, if uh, listeners French. want to go back to the archives, uh, when we had Gary Gallagher on, he had some interesting yeah. thoughts on the the origins of the uh, myth of the Black Confederates. Yeah, and uh, I do hope to have uh, Dr. Levine on. We've been discussing it. His, his teaching schedule mm-hmm. conflicts, but yeah. we'll get him on in the fall, hopefully, of 2006 to talk about his very interesting work on Confederate emancipation and Excellent book. the black soldiers. Um, well, you have uh, you mentioned your, your blog. You write about these issues online. What is the uh, address of that? Uh, the name of the blog is Civil War Memory, and I th- if you go to www.civilwarmemory.typepad.com, uh, that should get you there. And if you forget that, I think you can probably just Google Civil War Memory, um, and that should get you there. Um, and, and we will put a link uh, next week when I update uh, the Civil War Talk Radio website. Great. Uh, there will be a link on the, the picture from this show to your blog, and our listeners can go there Excellent. and read about it. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. I My apologize pleasure. for the vocal quality and the <laughs> dog in the background and the other audio verite that is... Not a problem. Is, uh, interesting. I, I enjoyed it, and it's actually been quite an honor being being on. So I I, I thank you.
Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and listeners, it's always an honor to have you listening. Thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.